0: Saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just as I said a minute ago, I want you to keep those Bibles open because we're going to look a little bit later to verse 20 to find where Jesus is saying this. In fact, it matters the physical location that he's speaking these words so that we would understand more about what he's teaching. Look at verse 20. It says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The treasury is another way of talking about the most public court of the temple. Uh, Many commentators that I read over uh, the course of this week as I was preparing my message, said that the setting of where Jesus said, I am the light of the world, is very important for our interpretation of why he said that. So the treasury was the outermost court of the temple, the most public area of the temple. You can see uh, a modern-day artist's rendering of what the temple very likely would have looked like. And so you can see there, there there's the, the tall golden gate. That is another more, more private and um, uh, area of the temple where, where people would go and worship. And then there's even that, that closed off building behind it. That was the Holy of Holies where the priest would only go one day a year. But Jesus said this teaching in that more public space. Uh, you can see the steps there in front of that large golden door and a large gathering area. Um, Last week, our passage was Jesus casting out the money changers from the temple. That would have been in this treasury area where people would would generally gather. And so, anyone was welcomed here in this area of the temple. And one of the architectural features that you can see are four tall pillars that were in this public area of the temple. Um, I would hope that even from the back, you could probably see these four pillars. And if you look closely, you can see Um, gold on the top of those pillars. Those are huge candelabras that would have lamps in them. And one day a year, those lamps would be lit uh, to begin the the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, If you would look really, really closely, I doubt any of you can see, there's like a ladder on the side of these pillars, and a priest would actually climb up that tall pillar and light those lamps to begin the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Jesus is saying, in, in this place, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And people would have connected that right away to this action of lighting these four large, impressive lamps so that people in all of Jerusalem could see that it was time to begin a festival. It was time to begin a celebration of what God has, had done in delivering his people. So Jesus often does this where he points to to some physical object or even to some person from the Old Testament and he teaches the people around him, I am the fulfillment of that object or I am the greater Moses. And so he does this with the temple. He does this um, with various figures in the Old Testament as well. And he does this in our passage as well by referring to these lamps that would be lit. These lights could be seen from far away. You can see that because they were so tall, they could be seen from outside the temple complex to from just about anywhere in the city of Jerusalem. They would be like invitations to the temple, invitations to the presence of God for all people. And Jesus says, I am the light of the whole world. And so it's not just people in Jerusalem who will be be warmly welcomed into the presence of God through him, but but he's the light that will shine even to the ends of the earth. And so it's a powerful word picture, and it matters where Jesus is saying these things because he's saying, these are spectacular lights, but I am the greater light. And he even goes on to say, anyone who walks, who, who follows me will not walk in darkness anymore, but will have that light within them, the light of life. And so we can examine this metaphor that Jesus uses as the light of the world from different angles this morning to grow in our our understanding of, of not only who Jesus is in a kind of academic way, but I hope that as we think about what it means that Jesus is the light, we grow in our love for him. That we would no longer walk in darkness, but that we would have the light of Christ in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our homes, in our church, wherever we go. There's so much that light does in our physical world that Jesus does in a spiritual way. And so we'll think about three different things this morning that light does in our world. There are certainly many more that we could think of, but we'll really focus on, on three things that physical light does and think about how Jesus is the spiritual equivalent of What light accomplishes. The first thing we probably think about is that light illuminates the world. That light illuminates the world. Light enables us to see. The spiritual light of Christ enables us to see clearly. Not maybe to see everything or get every answer that we've ever wanted in our lives, but the spirit, the spiritual light of Christ enables us to see God. To see ourselves, to see the law of God and to love it. The spiritual light of Christ enables us to see what's what's truly happening in the world around us instead of having our minds clouded by sin and by foolishness. So just as light enables us to see what is physically around us, the spiritual light of Christ enables us to see spiritual truths, spiritual realities. But this isn't Um, The state that we're born in. We're we're born, every person, into a, a state of blindness. The Bible is so clear about this. And often in the Old Testament especially, there are descriptions of Israel when they're sinning against God as a people who are walking in darkness. Isaiah 59, 8 through 10, describes how the sin of Israel is causing them to stumble around. They can't see God. They can't see his law. And here's the passage that, that helps us sort of see the opposite of walking in the light of Christ. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one walks in them. Who walks in them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men men without eyes so this is the state of every person naturally who is born into a sinful life without god we can't see what's right with god without god we cannot know what is true and then the Apostle Paul goes even further, saying that without God's intervention, we're even unable to see Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so not only can um, the natural in, in our natural state a person not see the problem, but in our natural state we can't see the solution either. And so when we read passages like this, it should not make us proud of ourselves that we could see Jesus and other people can't. We can see the truth and other people are walking in falsehood. We can see what is wise and other people are acting so foolishly. I know that sometimes a Christian could read a passage like this and kind of pat ourselves on the back. Yeah, that's how unbelievers might think and they can't see how beautiful and how good and how sufficient Jesus is and and we know better. That is not why the Apostle Paul wrote these things. That is not why the prophet Isaiah wrote his prophecy either. The appropriate response to passages like this is to recognize that that's us without God. That's every person without Christ. We are born spiritually blind. Every one of us. If it wasn't for God's intervention, we would be like those people Isaiah described, people in a dark room without eyes, groping along the wall to move forward. But it is such good news that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus shines into the world, into our lives so that we might see. Jesus illuminates the world. And what do we see? In the light of Christ, what can we see? In the light of Christ, we can see our sin. Some people like to jump maybe to the more positive things that we can see. Salvation in, in Jesus, we can see the nature of God, we can see how to live. All those are, are very positive things, of course, that Christ shines his light on. But, but first we can start and say, when the light of the world comes into the world... People see things that they might not have wanted to see, like sin. This happens in very practical ways. When you have Christ always before you, when you are focusing on Jesus, when you're reading about Christ in his word and maybe you have devotions that point you constantly back to Jesus and to his teaching, when you're really beholding Christ, you will see your sin more and more clearly every day. When you read about Jesus' compassion, when you read about Jesus' patience, it illuminates your anger and your impatience. And hopefully it would call you to confess that sin and to say, Lord, forgive me and help me be more like Jesus, who had compassion on people who were like sheep without a shepherd. When I remember that Jesus gave up his life for me, I'm thankful for that, but it also illuminates in my life my own selfishness. That at times I just want to do what I want to do. But you go back to Christ, you look at him as the light of the world, and he shines on my life my own selfishness sometimes. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When I read about Jesus' prayer life, and how devoted he was to spending time with his heavenly Father. I'm thankful for that good example, but it also reveals sometimes what is lacking in my own prayer life. And so the light of the world shining in my life revealing how I could improve in my own devotion to God. This is the kind of knowledge that isn't always welcome. Um, A lot of people like the more positive things that Jesus shows us about salvation and grace and, and the goodness of God. But with that, we also need to take the things that Jesus shows us, particularly our sin. This is the kind of knowledge that that sometimes we don't want. It's, for the Christian, going to be a welcome knowledge, but for the person who is not a believer, something that will perhaps make people push away the word of God, even push away Christ himself, because they don't really want to see what's happening in their heart, what their motivations are, what their real loves and desires are. One reason that Christians are often persecuted is that when Christ's light shines out from our lives, people won't like the sin that it reveals in their life. And this doesn't mean we go around as judgy, legalistic Christians, but this does mean that when a Christian enters a workplace with a joyful attitude, who speaks the truth, who loves other people, who speaks wisdom instead of foolishness, if you're living in that kind of way, some people will actually not want to be around you because it reveals how they're so full of sin and foolishness. I think of a workplace where a Christian goes and lives selflessly and and is careful about their speech and, and fulfills their promises. And, and in that place, I'm sure in in just about any workplace, there are those who are living in the opposite way, having a bad attitude, gossiping, speaking um, with foul language, having conduct that just reveals a, a deep foolishness for how they're thinking about the world. In these workplaces, a Christian will often be ostracized a bit because you're shining the light of Christ and people don't want to see what you're revealing, even just by your actions and your attitudes. John 3, verse 20, teaches exactly that truth. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. And so, one thing we see, the Christian and the unbeliever, in the light of Christ is our sin. But in the light of Christ, we also see the solution that is, Him. We see Jesus. The same light that reveals our sin reveals the solution. Jesus is making himself known to you all the time. Again, think of that, that place where Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and how there, those, those candelabras above the walls would have shined out to all of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm so much better than, than just what though the light that those candelabras can achieve or accomplish. He's going to shine his light throughout the whole world into your heart, into your mind, That as you open the word of God, it might be a good prayer to say, Oh Lord, shine your light in my life and illuminate what I need to see today. Help me see, help me believe what your word has for me. Knowledge of Jesus does not require for you to learn a complicated story, does not require for you to receive an an advanced degree. A child can see Jesus clearly. That's one of the wonderful things about the gospel that a child can see who Jesus is very clearly and learn the basic truths about him. He died on the cross to save sinners. Jesus is risen from the dead to conquer death and Satan. He's the light of the world that not only illuminates the world, but that enables us to see him, to see life, to see God. C.S. Lewis once wrote about how the person who is in Christ can not only see Um, the law of God and the works of God clearly, but can see actually everything else in life more clearly because of God. He has this great statement, as C.S. Lewis is so good at offering, these these pithy little reminders, excellent um, wordsmithing here. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So he's saying, I believe in not only Christianity, not just because I see that Christianity is true, I see that Christ is a sufficient Savior for me, not just because I see the truth objectively of the Christian faith, but because I am a Christian, I can see everything else so clearly now. So, brothers and sisters, you are called out of darkness and into his light to see Jesus, and to see the world clearly. That's the first thing the light of Christ does that we can think about. He illuminates um, the world, us, and even himself. Another function of light is that it warms us. It warms us. The longer the sun shines during a day, the warmer our days get. We experienced this during the past week with some 100-plus degree days. You can walk outside and... And even in the morning, before it even gets hot, you can feel it's going to be a warm day. (laughs) You just know those days when you go outside at uh, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning and the sun feels especially warm already in that early part of the day. We often, here in Ripon, want to get away from the sun's heat. But if you're cold, the warmth of the sun can be life-saving. If you're cold... If you need to be warmed up, that warmth of the sun can feel so good and even can save someone's life. This past week, in preparation for the sermon, I reread a short story called To Build a Fire by Jack London. A great short story that I would commend to you. Very thoughtful writing. It's the story of a man who is not named, who, who lives in the Yukon Territory. And so many of Jack London's stories are set in that that gold rush era where people were flocking to northwestern Canada to try to find gold. And so this man in the Yukon decides he wants to go see his friend, and so he braves minus 50 temperatures to go and see his friend against the the advice of um, one of the town elders. And so the man sets out to go and see his friends, And, and as you would guess by the title of the story, to build a fire, he needs... To build a fire at one point to survive, he falls knee-deep into a creek and his feet get cold. In minus 50 or 50 degrees below zero, that's a very, very dangerous thing. It's dangerous enough to be outside at all at that temperature, but to be wet in that temperature is, is extremely dangerous. And so he needs to build a fire. He picks a site for the fire that is below a pine tree because it's easier to get wood there. And eventually, the fire that he builds under that pine tree warms the pine tree up, melting the snow above so that it falls onto his fire and extinguishes the flame. And by that point, it's too late for him to go and build another one. And so here's a little um, excerpt from the story of To Build a Fire that that I think can illustrate how much we need the warmth of Christ. Um, Jack London wrote, The snow fell without warning upon the man and the fire, and the fire was dead where it had burned was a pile of fresh snow the man was shocked it was like hearing his own judgment of death that sound of the snow falling and extinguishing the fire he realized in that moment what was about to happen that he was going to die without that warmth giving him um, refreshment from his free, for his freezing feet so the reason that the story is so popular is not because everyone's been up to the Yukon and experienced that exact feeling of needing to build a fire. The reason that the story is so popular and so poignant is that we have had those kinds of experiences in our lives when we put our faith, our hope, and our trust in something, and then it falls apart. It falls apart. That marriage that you thought was going to make you happy And be the purpose for your life just isn't what you hoped it would be. Or that career that you put so much time and energy and hope into, thinking you're going to find your satisfaction and achievement and a reputation and earning money. Years later, you're realizing it just didn't do it for you. Or that new phone that was so exciting when you bought it. And you're thinking, I, can, I feel so good and so cool and I have this new gadget for the day. A few days later after you get it, it's just a normal phone again to you. It can all make you feel spiritually cold, disappointed, discouraged. And consider again that Jesus is the light of the world. Consider again also the location where he's giving that teaching. He is in the most public part of the temple, the person who comes to Christ is is warmed, is loved, is safe. The person who comes to Christ is alive. So we think, I would guess first of how the light of the world illuminates truth and so forth. It's a good word picture but but let's not escape the, the, the warming love of Christ and how we need that love. And so to come into church is to be spiritually warmed in the presence of Christ. Is to, uh, to, to remember that, that there's life in him. Whoever follows me, he said, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a, an amazing contrast to that little description of from to build a fire where the light is extinguished and Jack London said it was like hearing his own judgment of death. Brothers and sisters, in this place you hear the proclamation of life in Jesus' name and, and that has a warming effect on our souls. On May 24, 1738, one of the most famous journal entries was in the history of the church was written by a man named John Wesley. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist Church. And he says at at 8.45 p.m. on that day, May 24, 1738, he was attending a Bible study where someone was reading from Martin Luther's preface to the Book of Romans. (laughs) Kind of just an academic sort of thing that he was engaged in. And he was hearing the words of Martin Luther describing the gospel, teaching the gospel of salvation in Jesus' name. And as Wesley was listening to Luther's teaching, he was changed. And here's how he describes it. In his journal he wrote, While he, this is the person at the Bible study, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. My heart was was warmed. I know so often in the Christian Reformed Church we can be a doctrinal church, which is good to get the doctrine right. But we also must be a denomination, a congregation, where people are are warmed, are cared for, are loved by the light by Christ. And so you're invited. The light, to come to the light. You're invited to the light of the world, to be strangely warmed, says John Wesley, to trust in Christ. Now, the last thing that we'll consider this morning that light accomplishes is that it energizes um, something that certainly John, the author of this gospel, would not have fully understood in the, the first century. Maybe something that Jesus would have understood in his own teaching is that, that the sun gives energy to the earth. So when you sit by a campfire, you can not only see that it's, um, it's bright and it's active, and you can not only feel its warmth, but you see that the campfire is full of energy. So just as the sun provides energy for the earth, so Christ energizes the Christian he activates us to go and, and serve him in his kingdom. Christians should be the most energized people in the world. Jesus, the light of the world, is at work in you. Like a, a fire inside you. Like we sang that earlier, be the fire in my soul. And, and that has a connotation of, of being energized, being active, being useful, being a, a blessing to other people. Jesus, the light of the world, is at work not only in you, but but will be at work through you when you're focused on him, when you're relying on him, when his spirit is at work in you. So when I think of an energetic church, I think of the church at Pentecost, a church that is actually literally on fire as the tongues of fire are appearing above their heads. And it was on that day, ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven, that people were filled with the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire appear above their heads and this this light that appears above their heads symbolized that that the, the light of the world, Christ, his presence was now in them. And so this showed that God's presence was upon them. It showed that they had knowledge of God, that their minds were illuminated. And it also signified to these believers that they were spiritually on fire and full of power to go and share the gospel with people around them. That's one of Jesus' promises in the book of Acts. I will send my spirit upon you and you will receive power. You will be energized to go out and preach the message of salvation in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's that that worldwide impact that Jesus makes again. So just as the earth gets its physical energy from the sun, so the Christian receives spiritual energy from Jesus. I realize that sounds really new agey. I want to be careful that that's not the only thing we're here to gather is just to be energized and go out. But he illuminates our sin and salvation. He, he, he warms us in his presence and he also equips us, empowers us, energizes us to go and serve him. To put in a negative way, the person who is not abiding in Christ will be a lukewarm Christian. The person who has lost sight of Christ will also lose their motivation to serve in the church. The person who isn't really beholding Jesus, who isn't digging into the Word of God and seeing amazing truths and and living in a vibrant prayer life relationship with God, that person will also be a lazy Christian at work or in the church or in your family life. But I find that every time I enjoy the presence of God in my devotions, I'm ready to go after that, ready to serve Him, ready to focus, ready to do what he, He calls me to do in that day. And it's different what he calls each of us to do in our particular callings, but, but all of us must go to Christ, abide in Christ, for that, that energizing effect of the light of the world to be present in our lives. So, because of this, I am convinced that the way to motivate lukewarm Christians to get enthusiastic about church or serving Christ or sharing the gospel, the way to motivate such people is not, we need more ministries, we need more exciting things happening, we need more inspirational messages. No, that person will only be inspired to serve God by knowing Christ, the light of the world. Your spirit will be activated. Your mind will be Set on fire <laughs> so that and God will point you in the direction He wants you to go when your eyes are focused on Jesus. So as I close, just consider that these words of Jesus are for you. Are for you. Think about them for your own self, not for somebody that you need to share this with right in this moment. But but think about this promise, this description that Jesus gives of Himself. For you today, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, when you follow him, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in Christ, you have the light of knowledge of salvation. In Christ, that light warms your soul. And that light energizes you to live a purposeful, holy life. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are a people walking in darkness if it was not for your light shining in our lives. Lord, we thank you for that Great word from Isaiah 9 that for a people who are walking in darkness, a light has come. And Lord, we thank you for sending your Spirit upon us that we might not only have that light shining on your truth, on your word, and on Christ, but your Spirit also activating faith in our hearts that we would believe the truth and live according to it. God, we praise you for shining your light. Into our dark dark lives, for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and into your marvelous light. We thank you for the promise of being in heaven someday, where the Lamb is the light of the city of God. God, we praise you for teaching us so practically with this word picture. We pray that it would be on the forefront of our minds in the week ahead, that we would behold Christ who is the light of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.